Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. How you doing damn good friends <clears throat> hope you're well uh, thank you for dropping by again today you're probably wondering where the appalachian podfather's been for the last week or so well last week my mind still thought i was 20 years old or so and then, well in that event i overdid it some well a good bit actually doing some work that's when my back reminded me that a 20-year mile marker was well it was way back there in my rear view mirror so I had to cool my jets for a spell. I tell you, there ain't nothing that'll quiet you down faster than a pinched nerve. But it finally eased up, and now I'm back. Well, and thank you so much for being here. Folks, as you know by now, I spend my spare time, or what little I've had this year, pursuing my hobby, which is researching history and mysteries. <clears throat> I know it's pretty boring to anybody that's not really into it. I've always been into it, even since when I was a little feller. But... With all that being said, sometimes something just drops right out of the blue into my lap that I ain't even looking for. You know, that happened back in August of August 15th of 2002. I remember that I'd swung by my dad's house to visit him on the way home from work. He had an actual coffee percolator, and he knew how to use it. For those of you who don't know what a percolator is, well, all I can say is that you don't know what you're missing if you're a coffee drinker. We would usually sit and drink some coffee while we watched the local evening news. That day, there had been an awful crime committed just a hop, skip, and a jump from our house. Now, that translates to about an hour or so drive in regular English, but the news reported that a mother and father of a 13-year-old girl had been murdered in their home, and the little girl was now missing. I remember my dad saying, son, that's awful, isn't it? I'm afraid it ain't going to get no better. And yeah, I had to agree with him. And I don't know that we didn't know what was coming and how bad, sick, twisted it was going to get. But you ain't going to believe just how, I, just like I couldn't when I was sitting there watching it all happen. So now that everything's played out to the point where I don't know if it's going to ever change, I just sit on down there and uh, take your shoes off and set a spell. Let me tell you a sad story of the short family of Oak Level, Virginia. Michael Wayne Short was born on February 18, 1952. Now, Michael grew up in a normal Appalachian home. He'd go on a, to marry and have three sons, but his first marriage just didn't make it. 
and Mary Frances Hall was born on April 20th, 1966, which if you're ciphering the numbers, it's about 14 years after Michael. She grew up in about the same area of Virginia as Michael and had pretty much the same kind of upbringing. Now, Michael being divorced and I reckon just a little bit lonely, and Mary who kept to herself and for the most part and you know, pretty much working and going home day in day out would meet and began a romantic relationship together. They went on, got married, and had a daughter named Jennifer Renee Short, who was born on July 12, 1993. Jennifer was described as a sweet girl that was close to her parents. By now, on everybody around them parts, and in the summer of 2002, Jennifer was set to begin the fourth grade at Fisbro Elementary School. Now, the Short family lived together there in Oak Level, Virginia, which was just outside of Bassett. Now, if you're looking at a map, that's about an hour drive south of Roanoke. Now, Oak Level is pretty, <clears throat> a pretty little place. I've been there many times, and I could live there and be as happy as a lark. Now, the Shorts lived just off of US 220, which is a busy route, and if you've ever been there, you know what I mean when I say busy. Now, their address was 10820 Virginia Avenue. Now, Michael, Mary, and Jennifer were known as a quiet, close-knit family and just plain kept to themselves, but they were friendly and welcoming to anybody they knew. The three always got along with each other and with their extended families, which includes Michael's three now-adult sons. Now, Michael and Mary both worked for the same company, MS Mobile Home Movers. Now, the MS and the company name stood for Michael Short, who owned and managed the business that transported mobile homes. About 2002, and I'm sure many of you remember it, there was a bit of what they called a housing bubble, which meant that folks just couldn't afford to buy homes, which in turn meant Michael and Mary were now kind of hung out to dry. They'd put their home on the market due to that very financial issue. Although, all through 2002, Mary considered, um, Michael considered moving the family to South Carolina, which was where he had conducted a lot of business in the past. He saw that as a fresh start and a place for Mary and him to raise Jennifer. Now, sadly, none of them would get the chance for a fresh start, folks. On the evening of Wednesday, August 14, 2002, Michael was with an employee of his, Chris Thompson. Chris was working with Michael on a truck of his, but would head on back to the motel down the road where he had been staying for <clears throat> after it got dark and had, you know, to work on, didn't too dark to work on the truck anymore. Now, the last time Michael and Mary and Jennifer, all three, were seen, they were together about 11 o'clock that night when they drove through the Burger King drive through over in Collinsville for a late supper. And after that, it's thought that the family headed home and went on to bed sometime after midnight. Then the next several hours are pretty much a mystery to this day. Chris Thompson, who, by the way, was, like I said, Michael's employee, got up the next morning probably sore from crawling all over around and under a truck the night before and went back over to the shorts place just before nine o'clock. He was supposed to meet Michael and ride with him over to Christiansburg where they were going to pick up a truck for the moving business. I reckon because they were about tired of working on the one they already had. <clears throat> when he got over there, he noticed that the garage door was standing wide open and figured that Michael would be inside either still sleeping or maybe up working on that blame truck again. Michael had a couch out in the garage where he normally fell asleep watching TV. Word had it that 
Michael Snore intended to keep Mary awake, so he kept out of, slept out in the garage, you know, to give Mary a t- chance to get a little shut-eye. Now, I can believe that because the lovely Mrs. Bentley and I were both fitted with CPAP machines a few years back just to keep the bedroom rafters from collapsing in on us from the vibration created from all the snoring. Now, once inside the garage, Chris sure enough found Michael laying on the couch, but once he got closer, he realized that Michael wasn't sleeping. That's when the officials at the Henry County Sheriff's Office were called out to the scene where they sure enough found the body of Michael Short in his family's garage right where Chris said it would be. Of course, when you find something like that and you're a police officer, out comes a sidearm and you go clear the house. While going through that process, another body was found in a bedroom. That was Michael's wife, Mary. But a third body hadn't been found. Missing from the scene was nine-year-old Jennifer, who was nowhere to be found. Police immediately started canvassing all the Short's relatives and and friends, most of who lived right in the immediate area, but not a one of them knew where Jennifer was. Like I said earlier, I happened to be over at my dad's house where we were drinking our coffee. I did fail to mention that there were ham biscuits involved, but that's when the announcement and the press conference came on TV. Henry County Sheriff's Captain Kimmy Nestor told us all that what had happened and so far that and said that nobody knows where the child is and that the family is all in shock. I remember my dad didn't get excited over anything and still don't. I remember him saying, you reckon? But uh, they all announced that there was an amber alert now for Jennifer, which would extend all the way past the immediate area of the crime scene and in fact extended all the way up into the Washington, D.C. area, which was the first time it had ever been used there. Now, the next day, news alerts broke out, broke out nationwide, and Jennifer's picture was over about everything and every news source that you looked at. Searches were being carried out, or searches were being carried out throughout the next few days, which included not only loved ones or, and the, loved ones of the missing girl, but dozens of volunteers and police units also came out and was looking around. I remember seeing ATVs and even horses helping search the hills behind the shorts place. They called in canine units and a helicopter to search from above because, of course, it had to start raining just to make everything that much more pleasant. Now, nothing they did found hiding the hair of little Jennifer, who remained a missing child. As they continued to look for her, the investigators focused their case on what they had, which was a good-sized crime scene and that included the entire short house and property along with Michael's body and the body of Mary, his wife, Mary. Now, there was no sign of any struggle anywhere in the house, or inside or outside. And this was pretty much a good indication that both of them had been pretty much killed in their sleep. The killer used the same small caliber weapon to deliver a single bullet to each one of them's head somewhere between midnight and 9 o'clock the next morning when Chris Thompson showed up for work. I remember some of the news media saying that Michael and Mary had been shot execution style. Now, that's a term that I really struggled to handling the meaning of it. To me, an execution style would be standing somebody against a post with a blindfold over the eyes and an optional filter tip picayune smoldering in the mouth as the volley of shots ring out and the victim flops over their graveyard dead on the ground. Now, here lately, it seems like about everybody or you know, every shooting you hear about is execution style, but I'm, I'm just geezer bitching now and I'll shut up. The fact that they'd each been shot with a small caliber weapon probably kept the second victim from hearing the shooting of the first one and waking up before the devil incarnate 
could get to him and deliver his death blow. Now, during their original search of the house, police had been surprised to see Jennifer's bedroom empty. They fully expected to find her in the same condition as her parents, but all they found was her pillow on the floor, and her bed had been moved about two inches from its usual position in, in the bedroom. Now, the other thing they found was that the phone lines had been cut. Now, that meant that the whole thing had been premeditated. This wasn't something that was carried out on a whim, folks. This was something that the deviant had chewed on for a spell before he went and did it. Now, police kept the Shorts house cordoned off for more than two weeks while they went over every inch of the property for any clues. They got a metric ton of DNA evidence out of, well, they never specified what kind or how much, but they did collect about 66 other items out of the house, which included two 22 shell casings, one in bed next to Mary's body and one in the garage next to Michael's, a 12-gauge shotgun with its box of shells, a 22 rifle with a partial box of ammo, and about $600 in cash, which had been splayed right out on the kitchen counter, along with a business checkbook. Now, one other thing I remember being reported was that Michael's dark pickup truck was missing. Apparently, it was found because I never heard another word about it and couldn't find anything else out on it. Now, a few days later, the news reported that the investigators were searching a small pond near the short place, which was the only good-sized body of water in the area. Now, the reporters did what they always do and stood there talking about how there must have been a tip called in or somebody must be talking or showing the searchers while well, they're showing the searchers dragging the water and walking around big old pond with big old sticks and with hooks on the end of them poking at stuff and dragging stuff in trying to find something now the search turned up empty as well as the search they did at circle c motel over uh, near the family's house now the assumed reason for that search was that Circle C had been known to attract the local meth, wine, crack, and smackheads, and a few transits along the way. A motel owner, Lorraine St. Clair, told the reporters, who were again gathered outside in anticipation of something going down that they were afraid to be left out of, that police just wanted to check everything out. At first, police said that they were looking for a vehicle that was seen in the area. It was a red or dark colored van or truck or maybe a pickup which was seen sometime before nine o'clock in the morning but the description was so vague that the news reporters pretty much made fun of it and the police didn't get a lead from it the police were first thinking that jennifer might have escaped from the house and when her mother and father were shot and killed and ran into the woods around the house and got lost or turned around somewhere in fact, the sheriff's department said that there was no evidence that Jennifer was seriously injured in any way, shape, manner, or form. But when she didn't turn up after a while, they started changing her tune a little bit. They listed Jennifer's disappearance as an abduction, and that's when they brought out the dogs to try to track her scent. They couldn't track her anywhere but around the house and where they knew she'd already been. Since they had issued Amber Alert, they started getting tips from states as far away as Missouri, but none of them led to anything, and all the police didn't have any suspects, but they ended up talking to Chris Thompson, and one of Michael's employees, of course, and the good friend fully cooperated with the investigation. I know, folks, he would have been the first one I'd wanted to talk to, too. It turns out, you know, they, they did talk to him, and uh, from what I saw then, Chris told police that he had left late on the evening of August 14th. The entire family was still alive and well, and Jennifer had already gone to bed. 
he was given a real good sweating by the police in the weeks to come, and it was reported that he was cleared as a suspect because the shorts had recently put their home on the market. Real estate records were pulled to see who had recently come to have a look at it. That was all that was ever said about it, and so I couldn't tell you whether or not it led to any new leads, but investigators thought that whoever had done it might have used one of the open houses to case the joint. On August 23, 2002, Michael and Mary were laid to rest with a public funeral. The, The police had set up cameras to film the funeral, which is you know, now they do it as a common thing in situations like this. But heck, it wasn't like the news didn't <clears throat> have enough cameras there to start with. That turned out to be a bust because there just wasn't anything that happened that they could call odd. That Then I was back over at my dad's place because rumor had it that he was working up a pot of pinto beans that would be ready by the time I got off from work, which was just a week or so after the funeral when the news reported that police were exhuming the body of Michael Short for additional testing. When this happened, the news started to report that it was suspected that he might not be the actual father of Jennifer Short. Of course, that was uh, put on steroids during the report by Sheriff H.F. Castle, who refused to state whether or not the exhumation could have been done to prove Michael's paternity. The news went nuts with that one. They talked their asses off over it. Now, I'm not one to give credit where credit is due. Well, I am one to give credit where credit is due. That's exactly what they exhumed Michael's body for. It turns out that about 10 years before her murder, Mary Short had what one might call a stalker. He was somebody that had repeatedly harassed her at her workplace back in the early 1990s. Now, Mary had worked at the, a pluma plant in Bowles Industrial Park. Now, she worked as a seamstress and was referred to by her co-workers as Little Mary. On several occasions, a man looking for Little Mary had been asked to leave the plant's property. Each time, the man was escorted back to a white pickup truck and left. The police were unable to figure out who he was, and Mary never filed any kind of a report or protective order against him. And Jennifer was born the following year, and that's what led the whole line of wondering if it if, if he was actually her father Michael and, uh, and the surviving members of Jennifer's family and the police were asking her abductor the next day to release Jennifer and let her come home that was what I saw next on the news I remember seeing her missing posters all over southwest Virginia on every telephone pole store window and on everything that you could pretty much imagine I even saw one taped to the side of a combine sitting on the edge of a cornfield now folks this is just getting started stick around you're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley Folks, it was about six weeks later when a man living about an hour south of Oak Level made a discovery in his front yard. A dog belonging to the man named Eddie Albert, no, it wasn't Eddie Albert from Green Acres, he turned up with what appeared to be a wig, the dog did, and believing it to be just that, Eddie threw the hair in, in the trash, but his dogs came back two days later. On September 25th, that was, with what at first appeared to be a turtle shell. And it didn't take any long to realize it wasn't a turtle shell at all. It was a human skull. The police were called to Stoneville, North Carolina, where Eddie lived. 
and Eddie took them to the skull, as well as the hair in his trash can from a couple of days earlier. It wasn't long before the whole area was quarreling with police searching for where in the world a human skull and hair came from. It wasn't long before they found the remains of a what they thought was a child that had been dumped near a pond along a road. Along with the skull and hair, teeth and bone fragments were found near the nearby the bridge, as well as part of a rib cage, but no more than a quarter of the skeleton was recovered. <clears throat> because the Short family's home wasn't but about 35 minutes north, news broke, and it was believed that it would, could be the remains of nine-year-old Jennifer. But the police didn't think the remains were a match for Jennifer, even though everybody else thought they were. All, <clears throat> after all, the skull of a young girl or a woman also happened to have a single small caliber gunshot wound to the head which had been the same way Michael and Mary were killed. Now the police also said at the time that the teeth looked like the, somebody much older than nine years old and I remember telling my dad at that point that I'd seen enough pictures to know that Jennifer's teeth looked like they were developed ahead of her age and that I thought that the body was Jennifer's and I know why <coughs> excuse me I know why I was back uh, over at my dad's, is what you're wondering now, right? We were setting up a humane skunk trap because he had a skunk living under his porch and it was about to get unpleasant as it could get. And yes, we caught him and transferred him to a better home away from us where he might not get hurt and managed to do it without getting sprayed. There. The remains were sent off for testing and weren't officially identified for over a week. Then, on October 4, 2002, the investigators announced that the remains had positively been identified and they were those of Jennifer Short. They could determine her cause of death to be a gunshot wound to the head, but not much else due to the length of time she'd been out there. There was a new theory that came to light after that. It seemed like about everybody that had the same opinion, and they believed that Jennifer had been targeted by the killer since she was the only victim abducted because they killed Jennifer's parents, but didn't rob or steal anything. Well, that eliminated most of the other motives, I'd think, but looks like folks thought that, <clears throat> or who thought that, were pretty much, were pretty much right, I'd think. Investigators were sure enough believed that that somebody had saw or became infatuated with Jennifer, and since she rarely ever stayed far away from her parents or house, and that they, you know, had, since they had such a, good relationship with everybody in the, <clears throat> in the family they had had to break in and take her now the news media sounded like a bunch of cackling chickens with a fox looking through the wire while they talked about it for a few days but would finally move on to something else it was about the time that they did move on to something else that they had to make a u-turn come straight back the investigators announced that they'd pulled a man off apparently nowhere out of apparently nowhere that was and described he was described by police as either a witness a person of interest or a suspect now it just depended on the time of day you ask i guess garrison storm bowman bowman was a 66 year old carpenter now and he was an avid outdoorsman too and he was originally named a material witness by police at first and it was pretty clear, though, that Mr. Bowman soon became, became investigators' main suspect for several reasons. Police said that Mr. Bowman had fled to Canada a day after the murders. 
The police had got a call from Mr. Bowman's landlord saying that two days before the murder, Mr. Bowman had <clears throat> mentioned paying a man in Virginia to move his mobile home and that if he didn't follow through or return his money, he just might have to go over there and kill him. That probably puts you in the spotlight faster than you can say Jack Robinson, folks. But Mr. Bowman's landlord still wasn't done. <clears throat> he claimed that on August 15th, the day of the short murders, he had seen Mr. Bowman with a pistol. Now, the next day, he was gone, and his trailer was nowhere to be found. And But it was actually found later, about a mile away from where Jennifer's body was found. It was on a property of a friend that lived in the area. Now, after getting a tip from Mr. Bowman's landlord, police <clears throat> searched a piece of property that belonged to him and found a map that looked like or to them, it looked like somebody had marked route straight to the short place. And I remember hearing that there was an X on the short's property, too. I don't know if that's true or not, but I did hear that. Now, Mr. Bowman had friends that came to his defense saying that he'd planned to move to Canada for months and had moved his trailer on his friend's property for safekeeping until he came back. Now, they said that it was... Uh, just a coincidence that he happened to live a mile from where Jennifer's body was found. Now, they weren't done. They said that Garrison Bowman was a connoisseur of hops and barley and started drink, getting his drink on around 7 o'clock in the morning every day and didn't stop till he fell over in the evening. Now, so he physically wasn't able to carry out that kind of crime. Now, folks, it only takes a few ounces of strength to pull a trigger. I don't think it, uh, a few drinks would stop you, but... On August 15, 2002, police said they were planning to head up to Yellowknife, which is in Canada's Northwest Territories, to have a set-down with Brother Bowman. And they knew where to find him because he'd already been detained in a town called Inuvik for driving drunk, as well as violating immigration laws by lying about his prior criminal history, which included past convictions for, yeah, you guessed it, drunk driving, he was grabbed up by the scruff of the neck, dragged back to the border, and deposited right back into U.S. soil. Of course, the police were waiting there to slap a new set of bracelets on him so he could remain in police custody for the month. On October 30th, Mr. Bowman appeared in court in Henry County but was released from custody later that day. He would remain free on his own recognizance until December or November 12th when he appeared in front of the grand jury in Roanoke, Virginia in a hearing on the short family murders. Now, that was where I got my first look at him walking into the courthouse. And I remember thinking that he looked like a mad, cracked-up Amish man. But uh, I remember to me, the news meter was talking like the uh, police had finally got the killer, and it was just a matter of time before he was on a gurney riding a needle. But there was no indictment, which would indicate to me that there was just wasn't enough evidence even to consider charging a man with involvement. After all, a grand jury could indict a ham hock if they really wanted to. Now, later that month, Garrison Bowman was convicted for his drunk driving offense from Canada and was sentenced to seven days in jail. Now, in the years to come, no charges were filed against Bowman for involvement in the murders of Michael, Mary, and Jennifer Short. The man would continue to deny any involvement in the murders. I remember I saw him on TV once where he said this would hang over me for the rest of my life unless they find the person that did it. And folks, I only saw him that one time answering questions, and that was it. Didn't seem like he talked a whole lot in the public whatsoever. But 
Then in 2005, U.S. Attorney John Brownlee announced a case against two men, Timothy Fennin, Sampson, and Jerry Riley Mills, who he alleged had lied to investigators. Those two had claimed to see Garrison Bowman leaving the short home, carrying a young girl, and the night of the murders took place. Their statements led to the investigators and building up their case around Mr. Bowman, and it cost thousands of man hours chasing down leads that didn't exist. Now, the two were charged with a menu of crimes, including conspiracy, perjury, and providing false information to law enforcement. They were also reported to have threatened two men investigating the crime, wanting to pocket the reward money by linking Mr. Bowman to the case. And they really didn't give a hoot. They ruined Mr. Bowman's life in the process, I reckon. Now, another man, Tony Lee Epperson, was dragged in and charged for lying to investigators, too. All three men were ultimately convicted and sentenced to, to a few years in prison for their trouble. Now, that's the thing, folks, that I believe destroyed the investigation beyond pretty much any repair. The time that the investigators spent chasing the, the BS could have been spent chasing real leads. Now, in 2007, police would finally say that Garrison Bowman was no longer a suspect in the crime. He would go on to pass away in December of 2014. Surprising enough, not from drinking too much. Even though there was a big to-do about Mr. Bowman between 2002 and 2005, there were other parts of the investigation that police did keep working on. On July 22, 2003, nearly a year after the murders, the creek where Jennifer was found was diverted to search for more evidence. Henry County Sheriff Castle said that uh, multiple articles were recovered during the search, but didn't say what they were or anything else about it. And I remember my dad saying that he thought that they should have done that when they found the body. And in fact, that's what everybody I talked to thought too. Now, sure looked to us like somebody dropped the ball on that one. Now, a few months later in September, a year after she was found, Jennifer was exhumed for what police called forensic purposes. After that, I remember folks wondering if the remains might not even be Jennifer. Now, needless to say, after that, the competency of the investigators was being questioned by nearly everybody I talked to. I thought that maybe there was, just might be some DNA evidence in her on that hair, or maybe they try to collect it from that. I don't know, but it wasn't long after that when Frank Arrington, Michael Short's uncle, had himself a gut fuller going on and what was going on and talked to the news media. Now, Mr. Arrington came on to say his piece. He said that they, they meaning the police, I guess, uh, <clears throat> had mishandled the case from the jump by allowing so many people to in and around the crime scene immediately after the bodies were found. Now, while other family members pretty much disagreed, Mr. Arrington said that I'm telling the facts as I see them, and I think it should have been handled differently. Now, when folks in 2006, uh, <laughs> there came something out of the wild blue yonder because the whole thing wasn't a big enough mess already. Now, this one came down the pike like a semi-double-clutching knee-flat trailer truck rolling off Fancy Gap Mountain without brakes. While Mrs. Bentley and I were having a glass of homemade Concord grape wine, and watching the news, it was announced right there on Channel 10 by Denise Act, reporter, that several members of the Henry County Sheriff's Office were the one, <clears throat> were 
that were investigating the sheriff's case, uh, the short case, they were indicted for corruption. Now, among the officers implicated was none other than Sheriff H.F. Castle himself, who had been the big talking head of the investigation pretty much since it started back in 2002. Now, there were about 20 officers that were allegedly running a drug and gun ring supplied by what had been seized from criminals. Now, the indictment said that they they'd confiscate drugs and guns, or even both, from the low-life gun-toting criminals, only to then become low-life gun-toting criminals by filing official paperwork saying it it had all been destroyed. Then they'd sell everything back to other low-life gun-toting criminals. Now, the indictment said that the whole thing had happened or helped build up a drug distribution and money laundering ring around the whole region. And not only did it completely destroy any and all integrity that the department had, but it managed to do the same thing <clears throat> to the what was the country's highest profile murder investigation at the time. Yes, I had a second glass of wine on that one because <laughs> if the investigators in charge had been that corrupt, there was no telling what in the world they'd have done or not done or planted or maybe even outright changed in this case. But <clears throat> the news had everybody thinking that they'd took off after Garrison Bowman and tried to bury him under the chicken coop just to get the heat off them. Now, after all, I do remember folks complaining that the Henry County Sheriff was bogarting the case and they kept thought, they thought that it maybe should have been turned over to the FBI. But now that the whole Sheriff's Department was dashed to bits on the rocks of corruption, there was a whole new team called in. Not only regional authorities, but federal ones too, with both of them taking more active roles in the short family investigation. Now, a task force had been put together about a year earlier, which was made up of FBI agents and Virginia State Police, Henry and Rockingham County Sheriff's Department, and even an ATF agent. They started meeting regularly to discuss work on the case. They would begin pooling work on the case files, which had, at that point, about 3,000 leads. They were able to come up with several persons of interest over the next few years. Of course, they refused to give any information about who or where or what they were, you know, to the public, which always causes folks to walk around side-eyeing everybody. They passed like they might be a murderer for about six months or so after that. But come March 18, 2009, while we were finishing up supper, Mrs. Bentley and I watched the FBI release a few sketches, including a composite sketch of a potential suspect, a man seen near the Short family place at around the time of the murders. Now, the man was described as being in his 40s with a weathered complexion, and the sketches revealed not only what he looked like then, but what he might look like now, being seven years later. Now, they included a sketch of a white single-cab flatbed pickup truck with wooden rails, which had been manufactured between 1998 and 2002. Yeah, folks, you heard it too, huh? White pickup. <clears throat> I thought the same thing, but the truck was seen near the short place in early morning hours of August 15, 2002. Then uh, only <clears throat> the following May, FBI units descended or decided and descended on the places in South Carolina to canvas where they spoke to several people about the triple murder. Now, the, the cities they hit up included Bennettsville, Conway, Florence, and Myrtle Beach, which are all the cities that Michael had looked at, visited, and considered maybe the moving the family to one of them. 
nobody knows what came of that or whether anybody knew or remembered anything from nearly eight years earlier. Folks, <clears throat> there ain't been a whole lot that anybody knows about what's been happening, you know, since. We, we do know that the murderous piece of dog squeeze was most likely familiar with the region due to the location of where Jennifer was found. The area in Rockingham County just ain't traveled by many folks, and, and they don't even know it's there. What's more is that's a fair piece away from what somebody <clears throat> don't know exists, and if you don't know it exists, you can't find it. I've been there a few times, and it would be hard to happen to stumble upon, too. So, To me, somebody had to be pr pretty familiar with Rockingham County, North Carolina, and Henry County, Virginia. They probably have to know the Short family, too. They didn't go there to rob the Shorts. I mean, Ma Michael and Mary had been shot in their sleep, so if they wanted to rob them, well, all they had to do was pick up the $600 laying on the counter. They knew that Michael would probably be asleep in the garage. I think that he would have been shot first because it was the, he was the biggest threat. Now, being a small caliber weapon, I have information that it was a 22. Most likely nobody inside or <clears throat> around about the area would have even heard it. Now, whoever did it planned it out and started off by cutting the phone lines before doing anything else. Then they shot both parents who never knew anything and then abducted Jennifer. And we can only imagine for what, and after being out of the elements so long as she was, it couldn't be determined what had happened to her and anything other than the facts that she'd been shot and killed. Now, about a year after the murders, a bridge was named in Jennifer's honor. This bridge, or this was the bridge in Rockingham County on Grogan's Road where Jennifer had been found. The bridge is known as the Jennifer Renee Short Memorial Bridge. It's home to moral events like bike rides and folks that live or have lived in the area where Michael and Mary and Jennifer lived still continue to raise awareness for their story, hoping that somehow they might get some answers. The Shorts' home place, which was auctioned off four months after the murders, remains standing but mostly vacant for the better part of the time until 2019. Now, the reason it's not there today is that a suspicious fire resulted in it being burned to the ground in February of 2019. More than a few folks about them parts believe that the original murderer came back to clean up the crime scene by destroying any evidence that they might have left behind in 2002. And that <clears throat> now that genetic genealogy is starting to be some real... Uh, success and bringing some of these deviants in, the case is still open, folks, and what I know, still active. An $80,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the idiot responsible still stands, and anybody with information can forward it to the Henry County Sheriff's Office. Folks, I hope you got something out of this story today. It had to be told. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us and whatever media you're listening, and don't forget to follow us. Join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we talk about anything you want to bring up, I mean, even if it's Appalachian or not. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I will see you then. <laughs>